Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Anna. I have some news for you. What? What? Uh, at a time when Amber Heard is not everyone's, you know, no, no one's her number one fan right now. No one's a fan in general right no, now. No. Gorgeous face, though. You got to say it. Yeah. Beautiful face. You look like her. <laughs> You're the brunette version. And so I uh, took it upon myself to Photoshop you. <laughs> not you, Amber Heard with brown hair. Because I have so much free time. Look at this. That's literally you. Do you I, see it a little bit? I see it a little bit. You absolutely look like her. I was staring at you on the couch earlier. Oh, thank you. But she's you. less crazy. So anyways, now less we can proceed. Less crazy or literally not oh, the same oh, person oh. even remotely? <laughs> You're like a little less crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't pooped in your husband's bed. That yeah, I know of. That you know of. We tell each other everything though. Anyways, now we can proceed. So what story do you uh, have for me today, Ashley? Uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should just do a group cry. <laughs> it's like when you go to a workout class and you get excited when the teacher. Oh. <laughs> I just had a stroke. <laughs> you know, when you go to a workout class and you really hope the teacher's going to be like, you know, what, let's just do a stretch class today. We're not lifting any weights. We're just stretching and breathing. That's what I always hope for whenever I show up. And that's what I was hoping for today. That I would just be like, let's not record. Let's, let's stretch do a group and cry. breathe. Oh, yeah, just oh! you just want to cry. Let's just vent and cry. Are you in the mood to cry? Yeah. 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 I'm chill. And yeah. I want to cry. I want to do a little cry. It's therapeutic. There must be something like astrologically going on that is just making us so down or in wacky. the dumps. <laughs> a little wacky. A little wacky and funky. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the story I'm doing today is about Bonnie Haim. Do you know that story? No, I do Actually, not. I'm certain that you don't because if you did, you would have absolutely done it because it's <sighs> such a good story. It's, okay. it's wild. I got all of my information from a Dateline episode titled She Never Left. Ugh, I love that title. I freaking love Dateline though. I mean, I, I do just too. like. Gets to the point. Oh, They're so well so researched. And it's yeah. everything about it's so good. Delicious. So early on the morning of January 7th, 1993, Ivan Haim and her husband, Bernie, of Jacksonville, Florida, received a call from a police officer friend of theirs. He was at a motel near the Jacksonville airport, and he asked if they knew where their niece, 24-year-old Bonnie Haim, was because her purse was found abandoned behind the motel. Apparently that morning, a maintenance worker at the motel found a woman's purse in the dumpster, and after his supervisor verified that it didn't belong to any registered guests, they decided to call the police. One of the responding officers just so happened to know Bonnie and her family, which is why he called Ivan and, and Bernie. The couple had no idea where Bonnie was, so they rushed to the motel, and when they arrived, they find that their nephew, Mike, who is married to Bonnie, was already there with the police in one of the rooms. The police were in the process of spreading out all of Bonnie's purse items on the bed. That alone really grossed me out because it's a motel bed spread. <laughs> I've seen them put blue lights on those covers. Oh, yeah. I don't want to put my body on there. No way. Bonnie's ID, her checkbook, and all of the other typical purse items are still there, plus $1,000 in cash. Mike said that was shocking to him. He said it was highly unusual for Bonnie to carry cash like that, and he had no idea why she had that on hand. Mike explains to everyone that the night before, he and Bonnie had gotten into a huge argument. 
He said she'd been really unhappy with him and their marriage lately, and he had reached out to her mom to discuss it. And then he said when Bonnie learned that he had involved her mom in their marital issues, she got so upset. They argued for a while, and then she grabbed her keys and stormed out of the house around 11 p.m. He assumed that she was leaving to try to cool off, but when she hadn't returned by 3 a.m., he started getting really worried. He called his mom and asked her to come to the house to stay with he and Bonnie's young son, and then Mike went out to look for her. He drove past her mom's house, but Bonnie's car wasn't there. He said he drove around a bit more with no luck, and then he went back home and waited to see if she would call. When he woke up that morning, he called into work and told a coworker that he and Bonnie would not be coming in today. He and Bonnie worked at the same construction company. Gotcha. Then a few hours later, the police called and informed him his wife's purse had been found in a dumpster. Ivan and Bernie were so upset over this. Mike was their nephew, and it was their construction company that they worked for, so the two couples saw each other every day. And even though they were family by marriage, Bonnie was particularly close to Ivan, who I guess you would call uh, Bonnie's aunt-in-law. Okay, I was going to say sister-in-law, but it's an aunt-in-law. Yeah, yeah, aunt-in-law. In fact, Bonnie and Ivan considered each other best friends. That's so sweet. After hearing what Mike had relayed about the night before, Bernie and Ivan looked at each other, and they braced themselves in case the police might find Bonnie's body in the dumpster. They freely admit they knew in their guts there was something more sinister going on than Mike was saying. For example, they were so upset, yet Mike seemed emotionless. He seemed more concerned with why Bonnie was hiding $1,000 from him than he was about wherever she might be. But the reason that Ivan was most concerned in particular was the fact that she had actually made plans to meet up with Bonnie the night before, but Bonnie called at the last minute and canceled. She was in tears and told Ivan that she and Mike were having a big fight and she needed to stay home. Ivan asked if everything was okay and if she should come over, but Bonnie reassured her that she was okay and coming over wasn't necessary. And then the next thing she knows, Bonnie has disappeared without a trace. Detective Robbie Hinson is assigned to the case, and he coordinates huge manhunts in the wooded area surrounding the couple's home in the Jacksonville airport, but nothing comes from it. Bonnie's dad offers up a $2,000 reward for information regarding her whereabouts, but again, nothing comes of that either. And then Detective Hinson locates Bonnie's car. It was parked at the Jacksonville airport, and after processing... All they find in it is a male size 10 sneaker print on the driver's side floor mat. And they realize the driver's seat is pushed back so far, it doesn't seem like it was Bonnie who drove it last based off of her height. However, it seemed like it was perfectly positioned for someone of Mike's size. Because the car was at the airport, police look into flight records and they verified that Bonnie had not purchased a plane ticket or had been listed on any manifestos. Detectives treat Bonnie and Mike's home on Dolphin Avenue as a crime scene. They find that Mike wears a size 10 shoe, and they find sneakers of his that perfectly match the print found in Bonnie's car. But, I mean, that doesn't really tell us anything except at some point recently, Mike drove his wife's car with dirty shoes. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Otherwise, police don't find anything suspicious in the home or on the property. Detective Hinson digs into Bonnie's past, and he learns that Bonnie and Mike were high school sweethearts. They got married right out of high school, and both families were very supportive. Bonnie's family loved Mike. They said he was very sweet and charming, and that marrying him seemed like a really good decision. And everyone in Mike's family adored Bonnie. 
Not long after their wedding, both Mike and Bonnie got jobs working for Ivan and Bernie's construction company. And this is where Bonnie and Ivan really bonded. And she says that everyone at the company loved Bonnie. Although the way that Ivan kind of tells it, it seems like everyone who met Bonnie just loved her. She just had one of those magnetic personalities. Yeah. Two years after getting married, Bonnie gives birth to their son, Aaron. She was beside herself with happiness. She loved being his mom and everything she did from that point forward was all for Aaron. Like she used to say like, oh, so now I work just so that I can give Aaron whatever he wants. Like it just every single thing she did yeah. was about was providing for her, her son. Yeah. Her entire life revolved around her son. But by Christmas of 1992, when Aaron is three years old, things have changed in their family significantly. Bonnie goes to one of her sisters and confides that she's very unhappy in her marriage and she wants to get her and Aaron out. Not only is this something that she has thought long and hard over, but she's already making moves. Bonnie put a security deposit down on a new apartment. She opened her own separate bank account and she enrolled Aaron in a new preschool. Two weeks later, Bonnie goes missing. The tearful conversation with Ivan, where she canceled their plans the evening of January 6th because she was having an argument with Mike, that was the last time anyone heard from Bonnie Haim. Detective Hinson is fixated on interviewing three-year-old Aaron. Because if what Mike says is true, then Aaron was in the home when his parents were having a loud, drawn-out argument late into the night. So he's certain that it's worth the effort to find out whatever things Aaron heard, or more importantly, what he saw. 48 hours after Bonnie goes missing, Aaron is interviewed by a social worker named Brenda Metters. Brenda had interviewed dozens and dozens of children of varying ages in scenarios just like this one. And she said from the moment that she met Aaron, it was apparent he was very traumatized by something. Interviewing a child like this requires a lot of effort from a lot of people. Bonnie's sisters and mother were all in the room, and Brenda spent the day with them getting McDonald's and playing games and such. And eventually, Aaron was comfortable enough to start talking about his mommy. He tells Brenda, my daddy shot my mommy. <gasps> Brenda asked him with what? And Aaron said, a gun. Brenda asks him where his mommy was shot, and he pointed to his midsection and said, in the stomach. But Brenda says that there was one moment in their interview that stuck out to her the most. When she was trying to ask him about what Bonnie had been wearing, what her clothes looked like, and what color they were, Aaron got very still and quiet. Then he leaned forward and whispered, red blood. Brenda said that during their interview, anytime Aaron shared a scary detail about his mom, he would become very still and quiet and he would whisper it. And then as soon as they moved on to something different, he'd perk back up and go back to speaking at a normal level and being himself. So obviously police can't arrest someone based off of a three-year-old's interview, no matter how horrifying it is. But given the circumstances, social workers remove Aaron from Mike's care, and he's sent to live with Bonnie's sister, Liz. Mike had visitation rights with Aaron twice a week, and Liz said it was awful. Aaron would throw such severe tantrums when he saw his dad, and then he was so traumatized afterwards that he developed serious behavioral problems. He saw his father kill his mother. He doesn't feel safe around him, even if he can't compute. Of course. Liz admits that it was so difficult and it took such a significant toll on her health that she realized she needed to make a change, something with Aaron's best interests at heart. 
If Aaron were to be put into the foster care system, Mike wouldn't be legally allowed visitation rights. He wouldn't be allowed to know the identity of Aaron's foster parents or the location of their home. So Aaron is sent to a foster home. But Liz takes it one step further, and she petitions the court to classify Aaron as a state witness, therefore providing the ultimate protective shield from Mike. And thankfully, the judge agrees, and five-year-old Aaron moves in with a couple named Ronnie and Jean Frazier. Jean said that in the beginning, all she knew about Aaron was that his mother was missing. But about six months into living with them, Aaron started dropping these little tidbits of information about what happened to his mom. He would mention here and there things about his dad shooting his mom. And if Jean asked any questions, Aaron would shut down and stop talking. So she had to carefully, slowly maneuver for months until Aaron felt comfortable continuing to share more. He ends up becoming so comfortable talking about this that she starts writing down all that he's saying because he, now he's just letting it all yeah, out. Floodgates are open. Yeah. And then eventually he starts to dictate to her what he wants written down. He's a five-year-old. Wow. Yeah. There's a video in the Dateline episode of Aaron sitting on a couch between his social worker and his foster mom, Jean, and it was recorded by his psychologist. Together, they're reading the binder full of dictated entries Aaron has provided, and Aaron asks his social worker to read to him what the pages say, so she does. Aaron had told Jean that he was with his dad when he walked up to Aaron's mom and shot her in the stomach. He was with his dad when he threw the gun off a bridge and into the water below. He was with his dad when they drove somewhere in the dark and dropped his mom's pocketbook in a trash can. And he was with his dad and his grandparents, Mike's parents, when they buried Aaron's mom. Ooh. He said, quote, and then we digged the hole together. Bonnie's family firmly believed something bad had happened to her solely because of her devotion to Aaron. They said there was no way that Bonnie would willingly leave her son and the fact that she shared with her sister two weeks before vanishing all her plans to get she and Aaron out of that house on Dolphin Avenue. I mean, the, the, the first thing she did was enroll Aaron in a new school. So then why would she then, in the heat of the moment, walk out and leave him behind, throw her bag in the trash with her ID and $1,000 in cash, and then abandon her car at an airport? No, her husband friggin' did something. I know. Ironically, Bernie and Ivan, who are technically Mike's family... They believed from the moment that Bonnie went missing, Mike was responsible. They had witnessed Mike verbally abuse Bonnie at work, and one time he slammed Bonnie's hand in a car door. Ivan was aware that Bonnie had recently opened her own bank account and that when Mike learned about it and that she had been having the, the statements mailed to work so mm -hmm. that he wouldn't see it at home, he freaked out and demanded that she close it. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I bet that's why she had all that cash. She of probably course. had it in the account. She probably closed it to appease him and get him to calm down. But then where else is she going to put she it? She had to so withdraw she, it. She had to just hold on to it. So for both families to hear about Aaron's statements, surprisingly, it divided them more than anything. Bonnie's sisters are all convinced Aaron is telling the truth and that Mike likely killed Bonnie and disposed of her body. Even Mike's own aunt and uncle believed it. But shockingly, Bonnie's mom and her dad, they are the only family members who don't believe Mike is capable of that, regardless of what Aaron says. So even though Aaron has made such serious and consistent remarks about his mom's death, it doesn't change the fact that all of the grownups around him continue to refer to her as missing. 
Jean says that Aaron would regularly ask if they could go drive around and look for his mom. So they did it all the time. They'd just drive and drive and drive and drive. And one day he asked if they could go look again and Jean said yes and she started walking toward the car. But Aaron started running to the backyard and she asked where he was going and he goes, to get a shovel. Jean said in the Dateline episode, it's like he knew she was buried, he just didn't know where. Detective Hinson, regardless of where he was at with Bonnie's case, would regularly visit with Aaron throughout his childhood. Aaron held a special place in the detective's heart and the image of the little three-year-old with big eyes and a bowl cut, suddenly without a mom and ripped from his home and his dad, that always haunted him. Whenever Detective Hinson was there, Aaron would also ask him if they could go driving to look for his mom. So the detective always agreed and would load him up and they'd go out driving. When Aaron was 10 years old, he'd been with his foster parents, the Frasers, for six years and they wanted to adopt him. Aaron said that he wanted that too. And in order to make it happen, Bonnie's sister Liz had to petition the court to legally declare her sister as dead. But she did it because that's what was best for Aaron. In doing this, all of Mike's parental rights were revoked and Aaron Haim became Aaron Frazier. As an adult, Aaron has nothing but gratitude towards his adoptive parents. He said they are incredible people of incredible character who opened their home to a child who needed one so badly. And without hesitation, they loved him unconditionally. They gave him a path to healing, to happiness, to a sense of belonging, and as much of a normal childhood as possible. They supported whatever his interests were, and they arranged for any and all extracurricular activities that he liked, like baseball and karate and stuff like that. Declaring her sister as legally dead was difficult, but Liz said that the Frasers were the best thing that could have happened to Aaron, so she is forever grateful to them. On behalf of Aaron, Liz filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Mike. If they won, Mike would be forced to pay Aaron for the lost income his mother staying alive would have provided him over his lifetime. And a judge orders Mike to pay Aaron $26 million. Whoa. How do you do that? (laughs) Well, obviously Mike does not have anything like that. But it means any and all assets Mike possesses will be transferred to Aaron. Good. One of those assets being the house on Dolphin Avenue. Mike still owned it after all these years, even though he'd moved to North Carolina after losing custody of his son. He had remarried and started a new life there. Even though Aaron owned the home now, he had no interest in ever going there or even dealing with it. I should clarify, he was like 16 when this happened. When it was Yeah, so he's he's no longer a child. He says that as an adult, he really has no memories of Bonnie or Mike or the house or the consistent statements that he made as a toddler. He said his memories start the day that he met Jean and Ronnie Frazier. He remembers vividly going to their house for the first time, and after that, his only childhood memories are happy ones with the Frasers. He knows about his story, he knows about Bonnie, and he knows about Mike. But as he was getting older, it became more like an out-of-body experience for him to hear about it. That's trauma brain. (laughs) Yeah. Although, even though his memories have faded, he said his body seems to remember. Of course. Because he would have an emotional reaction to anything relating to the people and events that he no longer recalls. So because of this, he just, he never wanted to go to that house. So he rented it out to long-term tenants and just avoided thinking about it. But then in 2014, when it became vacant, Aaron is now in his 30s. He's married. He has 
a happy and full life and he decides to go look at the house and he's really taken aback at what bad shape it's in. So he and his brother-in-law decide to do a bunch of DIY renovations. One day when they're using an excavator in the backyard, they bust a pipe and in order to fix it, they grab some shovels and they start digging around. And then Aaron hits something. He pulls it out and finds what appears to be a coconut in a plastic bag. And he's like, why would someone bury a coconut? And he hands it to his brother-in-law and they're looking at it and they're like, what the hell is this? And then they see loose teeth in the bag. And then they realize the coconut is actually a skull and there's still a bit of one of the eye sockets attached to it. I have I have never felt more speechless in my life. You never so felt devastating. what? Speechless? Yes, that makes me cry. <laughs> I know. Oh my god, this guy just can't get a break. <laughs> I know it's really, really sad. It's fucking awful. Aaron immediately calls Jean and asks her to get him Detective Hinson's phone number. He told her, "I found her. I found my mom." When Detective Hinson got this phone call, he was floored. You know, this was 21 years after Bonnie went missing, so he had long since retired. But he jumps in his car to race to the house, and he called a buddy of his who still worked in the sheriff's department, and that deputy got to the house first. While Henson is still driving over, his deputy buddy calls him, and Henson asks, is it a dog they found? And the deputy said, no, it's a human skull. Henson said he had to pull over right then and there to compose himself because he immediately broke down crying. Even in the Dateline interview, when he's relaying this part of the story, he, he can't even... He's just crying the whole time. He said, it's obviously frustrating as a detective to find out later that the vital clues or in this situation, the victim's body was right under your nose the whole time. But what kills him is that he should have been the one to find her and his failure to do so meant her son was the one to do it. After all these years, when he looks at Aaron, Henson still sees the sweet little boy with a bowl cut and he can't stomach that he couldn't protect that child from this awful discovery. When police continue digging, they find several of Bonnie's bones, her acrylic nails, her wedding ring, and even her pants. And, of course, DNA testing confirmed that it was, in fact, her. In August of 2015, Mike Hame was arrested and charged with the murder of his former wife. When detectives in his new home state of North Carolina sit down with him, one of them asks, do you know of anything in Jacksonville that might come back to haunt you? And without hesitation or emotion, Mike nods and says, yeah, my wife. Four years go by before the trial begins, and when it does, it only lasts less than a week. Mike testified and reiterated the same bullshit story from 1993, that he and Bonnie got into a fight and she took off after that. He assumed that she was leaving, he and Aaron, and he insists that he did not kill her and said he wasn't capable of hurting his wife. The only interesting tidbit that Mike's lawyers brought up in the trial was that apparently three years after Bonnie went missing... Jacksonville PD received an anonymous letter that said simply, Bonnie Haim, Dolphin Avenue, Jax. The body is buried in the yard. Bring a dog with you. Hurry. Apparently, the police didn't look into that lead, and we have no idea who that came from. It could have been one of the, the parents. Oh, Very I, didn't, likely. I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah one of Mike's like parents. If that's, if that's true and they helped him, then, then maybe that is the case. It also comes out in the trial that... When Aaron first started dictating journal entries to Gene, and he mentioned the part about being with his dad when they threw the gun over the bridge into the water, mm -hmm. apparently police searched the water and found the gun back then. But I don't know what, 
I guess it still wasn't enough to do anything at the maybe time. Like the maybe the serial number or something was scratched off so they couldn't connect it to him. Maybe. Several family members, including Aaron, as well as multiple cellmates of Mike's, all testified against him. The cellmate stated that while Mike was in jail waiting for this trial to begin, he admitted to killing Bonnie and burying her in the backyard. And they even said that they feared for their safety sharing a cell with Mike. It took just under two hours of deliberations for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict of murder in the second degree. In addition to that, they also find milk. Milk. <laughs> they found milk. <laughs> they found milk. In addition to that, they also find milk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading Mike guilty and I'm making it In addition to that, they also find that Mike is guilty of committing murder in front of their young son. So these two charges combined carries a life sentence. Mike Haim will spend the rest of his life in prison. One of Bonnie's sisters said that she expected to feel elated when she heard the guilty verdict, but she didn't. She still felt an emptiness and she realized it's because Bonnie is still gone. But for Aaron, he said that he felt relief at the verdict and that it signifies to him an end to Bonnie's story. Mike's sentencing was delivered on May 21st, 2019, only one day after what would have been Bonnie's 50th birthday. In a garden that's been dedicated in her memory, Bonnie's friends and family, and of course, sweet Aaron, all gathered to celebrate her legacy. And that is the tragic story of Bonnie Haim and her son, Aaron Frazier. So I don't know how many episodes we've done, like shorties plus crime bar. Yeah. It has to be, you know, 60, it's, 60 plus. It's really, it's probably, it's, a lot. Over, it's probably over a hundred okay. with, with the two things combined. Yeah. I'm bad with numbers. <laughs> um, but that is without a doubt, I think the most heartbreaking story that yeah. either I mean, of us have ever told. In watching it, like the, the videos of, of little Aaron as a three-year-old um, in news clips, because obviously you know, this local story was all over the news. It was a, it was a mm-hmm. huge deal. And just seeing him with his dad, like there's this one interview that his dad is giving the day after she goes missing. And it, it, it's just like knowing what we know now that just hours earlier, his, this man had murdered his wife in front of their child and he made the child be a part of the entire cleanup process. Yeah. And then he, then you know, how confusing and upsetting is it for the child to then have all these huge bright lights brought into their home and interview, you know, it's just, it's so awful and it's so devastating. And, and seeing that person, you know, twice a week and then being put in foster care yeah. and that was obviously the right move for him. Yeah. But like that is just so much for one human being to endure under the age of five years old yeah. or at any age. At any age. It's terrible. But it sounds like he had the most incredible adoptive parents yeah. and he's healthy and happy now. So, yeah. I mean, that's that, in a that in itself is a happy ending, yeah. but Man, that was a roller coaster. <laughs> it's very emotional. I was very emotional writing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that got me for sure. But yeah. thanks for telling it to us. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. No problem. Love you. <laughs> Love you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. 
This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina.